0: makes the comment, if you try to reach everyone, you'll reach no one. If you're going to reach everybody out here, how about just focusing, who has God divinely put in your life? Who has God put in your life? And that you come in contact with, that you have an influence, Uh, could be family, friends, neighbors, job acquaintances, on and on. And uh, now, now, one of the great challenges, are any of you having any problem trying to figure out an oikos group other than Christians? I am. Everyone practically in my life is a Christian. Some days I doubt it, but I, I think they are. Because I'm not, who do I run with? I, I run with so-called Christians. On my working life, everything. And guess what we do? We cease to be evangelistic, like this church was made to be packed to the sides. We're supposed to be to a third service. That's if we were multiplying and adding instead of just becoming. What many churches become is a geriatrics ward. We just grow old together because we're not adding people but God wants to add people to the body of Christ, you're living in the land of the dying, and you need to tell them how to be prepared to go to the land of the living. Everybody around us is dying. Are you aware of that? You won't live long until you start burying loved ones. And uh, we know of a 24-year-old youth worker's wife dying of cancer, 24, 51-year-old man facing cancer. Critical times, unless the Lord undertakes. We just buried Victoria uh, a week ago, 12 year old granddaughter of Blanca Alcair. Life, life keeps going. Let me show you the power and influence that one person could have in sharing the gospel. And this is taken from Win Arn, his little book on discipleship. He gives this chart that's amazing. And if we can look on that, he, he just gives, he tracks this out in his book, how one man comes to Christ and he shares it. Did you want to share Christ when you first got saved? Well, everybody in your world most likely was unsaved, at least here. He shares it with his cousin. Okay, then what happens? Watch this. They share it right here in this network, Father. I would think you'd want to tell your dad how to go to heaven, or at least that you're going, right? We didn't have a whole lot of wisdom when we first saved, right? It was kind of turn and burn. You better get saved or you're going to hell. Well, it's not really effective, but it's the truth, yeah. And sometimes I say, please don't come back. mean, so you got one shot, and you alienated everybody. And by the time you get real wise, you don't share. You know, now I know how because I've gotten so wise, but I don't have the same zeal that made me take the risk at the beginning. But look, father, stepmom kept going. Brother, sister-in-law just kept next. Notice the next just keeps going. See there, even going to friends, maybe on the job, neighborhood, okay. They start sharing. And the next one. Now, this all started with one person and their little network. They just share. They just share with one cousin. That's as far as they got. But look at that. Just keep going, keep going, keep going. And... uh Was it that way in your family? Uh, I know my family, they talk about the 40s, war years, when many of my family were saved at a little Portuguese Assembly of God Church in Berkeley. Many were touched with the gospel, came to Christ, right over there by Spanglers in Berkeley. Portuguese pastor and uh, fresh from the Azores had great impact on my family. You, got any children in your family that you're not sure are going to heaven? You got any mama or daddies? Just keep going. I mean, going out, we got plenty of folks to work on, usually in our own family tree. Do you have any sinners in your family tree? Well, if they're anything like you, you do. We're all sinners. It's like Oklahoma. I've been watching this special on gunslingers, David and I. Roots, you know, it's all about Oklahoma. I used to always talk about Oklahoma as a Bible belt. And my dad said, no, 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 you don't know what you're talking about. It was Indians, cattle rustlers, wife beaters, bootleggers, and killers. Only women and children went to church. The machos killed somebody, including the Howards. Killed a man just for a saddle, hung him. It was Indian territory. My grandfather was born 1880. Hey, you weren't waiting to call the police. You just kept your gun loaded. Pagan, lost, mean, worthless. You knew when men got saved because their wife healed up. They quit whipping their wife. And their kids begin to have milk instead of moonshine. That's where my people came from. And your people, you don't want to track your ancestry too far back. It's going to be too painful. They're back there. It's called being sinners, going all the way back. And so, what has God's method been to reach them? It's other saved sinners who come in and say, if God was gracious to me, He'll be gracious to you. I simply believed and received good news, what Christ did for sinners to get them to heaven. Could I share that with you? Now, today, Tom Mercer. Now, the thing about Tom, none of you ever knew him until this book. Tom Mercer is in the high desert uh, area out of L.A., uh, going towards uh, Nevada. And uh, he was a youth pastor. His father was a youth pastor. And um, went to Talbot Seminary, got to working in the youth group, started maybe 20 kids, grew to about 100, there a few years, grew to about 300. Well, he started using this oikos principle as his method of evangelism. In your sphere of influence, be sharing Christ. And we're trying to make this a part of our DNA. Not a one-month emphasis and say, I'm glad we got that out of the way. No, 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 no. If we don't want to reach people from whom Christ died, do we have a right to exist? No, we don't. We're not just the comfort club and where we just get deeper in the word and more disobedient. Some people don't need to learn anymore. They need to start doing something. Obedience is better than more knowledge obedience, to be a happy Christian, you've got to be a doing Christian, doing with the Word. But I know some people have bigger notebooks, and they always want to hear Daniel and Revelation. Can't get enough. Well, so what? So you know all the horns on the beast. What are you doing with the beast in your neighborhood that don't know Christ? And God wants to convey that message through you and I. And Mercer today, a man that stayed with this Oikos principle, God gave great success to the church, and they're into the thousands now. It's High Desert Church, and uh, God has used it, and we thank God for that. Mercer's going to speak to us today, staying focused. What is our main purpose? And it's a little shocking, some of the things he says, because I didn't really start a church to be evangelistic, to be truthful. I'm making a true confession. I grew up truly saved, truly God's people, but we were so ignorant of the Bible, I had a burden to teach ignorant Christians about God. That was my burden when I started this church. And I went after my backslidden family. My sister, my brother, different anyone I knew in my family that had backslid and gone away from church and felt they were going to hell because we believe you got saved and you lose it five times. And uh, I went to tell him you don't lose it and get him back in church. So I've been a teaching-centered kind of a pastor, a John MacArthur kind of emphasis. Let's teach, teach, teach. And I want to continue that. But teach without going. We will just become a geriatrics ward. We will grow old together, quoting the Bible to each other. Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it great? Yep, sure is. But some of you I've been seeing around here for 35 years. I love you, but you are getting old. And so am I. Guess what? We want to win the dying and eternally destined around with us that need to hear good news. I know how you can go to heaven. And God has sent me to you, not Billy Graham. He sent me. And that's what he's going to focus on. So let's see it.
1: Larry Walters went to the local Army-Navy surplus store and purchased 45 weather balloons and several tanks of helium. He securely strapped the balloons to a sturdy lawn chair, anchored the chair to the bumper of his Jeep, and then inflated the balloons with the helium. He had packed up several sandwiches and a six-pack of beer and then loaded his pellet gun, figuring he could pop a few of the balloons when it was time to come back down. Larry's plan was to simply float up to a height of about 30 feet above his backyard and come back down a few hours later. But things didn't quite work out that way for Larry. When he cut the cord anchoring the lawn chair to his Jeep, he took off into the L.A. sky as if he'd been shot from a cannon. He didn't level off at 30 feet like he had hoped, but at 16,000 feet. And at that height, he couldn't risk shooting any of the balloons, so he stayed there, drifting cold and frightened for more than 14 hours in the primary approach corridor of LAX. When an airline pilot first spotted Larry, he radioed the tower and described passing a guy in a lawn chair with a gun. Radar confirmed the existence of an object floating 16,000 feet above the airport. LAX emergency procedure swung into full alert, and a helicopter was dispatched to investigate. The offshore breeze began to flow and carried Larry out to sea, and right on Larry's heels was the rescue helicopter. The chopper ascended to a position several hundred feet above Larry and lowered a rescue line. He was pretty much out of options. No hope of figuring this thing out on his own, that's for sure. So he took the rope with which he was hauled back to shore. And as soon as he landed, he was arrested by waiting members of the Los Angeles Police Department for violating LAX airspace. Well, hello again. I'm Tom Mercer. And I so much appreciate your willingness to together consider the Oikos Principle. As I told you last time, it is the most basic, most productive, yet at the same time, perhaps the least innovative idea I've ever heard. I hope you've had the chance to read chapters 5 through 12 of the book, 8 to 15, The World is Smaller Than You Think. Again, don't worry if you haven't, but those who have will have a bit of a head start on this phase of our journey. The rest of you can catch up this week. This time I want to focus in on the purpose for Christ church. In Matthew 16, Jesus said this, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Notice he did not say that he's going to build your church or my church. He only said he would build his. The Bible says that he's the head of that church, his church, and since it is his church, he gets to decide how he's going to be building it. Now, you can decide how to build your church, or I can decide how to build my church, but if we're going to be involved in the process of building His church, then we're all going to have to defer to Him about what that process should look like. And last time we saw that Jesus was pretty clear about how He's going to do it. He's going to position a rescue vehicle on the heels of people who are pretty much out of options, like our friend Larry drifting through life cold and frightened, without any hope of figuring this thing out on their own. And the rescue vehicle God has chosen to use is you and I, people whom God has strategically positioned around those who desperately need deliverance from their sin. It's always been that way. Whether Jesus was talking to His disciples or to those delivered from demons, tax collectors or soldiers, businessmen or prison guards, Jew or Gentile, the strategy was the same. Get saved and go home. He changes your life, and then he sends you home to your oikos to change your world. Building anything with competence requires an understanding of its purpose. You can't build a good gymnasium if you don't understand the nature of the game, so it will be played there eventually. You'll build a better house if you know who will eventually live there. And if you have a clear beat on the church's purpose, your role in the building process will be a lot easier to figure out. Now, when I was young, the message I heard at church, not that it was the intended message, but it was the message I heard, was that the purpose of the Christian life was to make fewer mistakes tomorrow than we made today. That what it took to be a good Christian was simply to stop messing up, manage our sin, and we'll all be fine. Actually, sin management was not a very compelling reason for a teenager to attend church 40 years ago, let alone today. But that's okay because sin management is not the purpose of the Christian life. And I'll prove it to you. When will you be more holy than at any other time in your life? When you're dead. You will be perfect. If sin management was our purpose in life, then God might as well take us all to heaven. Sin management is important. We would all agree on that but it's a means to a much more important end, that of our fulfilling our actual purpose in life. Some of you might argue that worship is the purpose of the Christian life. A number of fast-growing churches have taken on that purpose for their coming together every week, providing this amazing ambience so that believers can have a meaningful experience with God. And I have to tell you, I love that. Some of the most amazing worship services in the world happen within the context of my home church. Those kinds of experiences help propel us forward in our faith. They encourage us to overcome our fears, they challenge us to live out our biblical principles, but they do not frame our purpose. And I'll prove it to you. When will you enjoy better worship experiences than at any time in this life? When you're dead. The best worship in this or any other universe is around the throne of God. Now, some people think of fellowship as the purpose of the church. I know it's the purpose of some of the churches I've been in where the most important decision of the week was who was going to plan the next potluck dinner. Truth be told, I love fellowship, and I certainly love the food that goes along with it. It just cannot be the purpose of Christ's church. And I'll prove it to you. When will we enjoy better fellowship than at any other time in our lives? When we're dead. Some people say that learning the Bible is our purpose. Now remember, I speak as someone who actually makes a living by teaching the Bible. I grew up under the teaching ministries of some of the most prolific and capable Bible teachers of the last century. I teach the Bible as if it were authoritative. I'm convinced that it is absolutely crucial that we understand its principles if we want to experience the full life that Jesus talked about. But learning the Bible or learning about God is not our life purpose. It can't be. And I'll prove it to you. When will you know more about God than at any other time in your life? About a second after you die, you'll finally see Him as He really is. All I'm saying is that as important as those things I've just talked about are, the moment we pass from this life, we will all instantly be better at all of them than we could ever hope to be in this life. And the purpose of the church cannot be something we will be better at when the church doesn't exist anymore. No, God has kept us here for the time being because He wants us to do something in this life That we cannot do in heaven. And that's a short list, by the way. In fact, there are only two possibilities. One, to sin because there won't be any sin in heaven, and or two, to share Christ with people who don't know Him because there won't be any people who don't know Him in heaven either. Those are the only two things that we can do in this life that we won't do better in heaven. And since it wouldn't make sense that God would leave us here to sin, then by default, our life purpose must lie in helping others know Christ. In John chapter 15, Jesus said this, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Jesus knew that like young children, we'd find greater interest in a book with lots of pictures. And so when he taught, he often drew pictures, ones that his audience would readily recognize. This one is especially clear. God the Father is the gardener. Like every farmer, he has a vision for the future, a potential harvest, and he has a good idea where, when, and how to plant. It's like he strategically, and since we're talking about a divine gardener, we actually could add the word supernaturally, planted us in an environment where the harvest can be maximized. You could say that your oikos is a garden, a place where two things happen, where we grow and where we bear fruit. Jesus, as the true vine, is the source of life, and ironically enough, He too has one thing in mind, to bear fruit, that people would know Christ. Clearly, we are the branches, and our choices determine the level of fruit that results from our lives. So all of this is really about our intent, how intentional we are about our personal development in Christ, that is, remaining in the vine, and our mission to the people around us, that is, bearing fruit for the kingdom. Now, I call these fruit squares. Look at the lower left quadrant, where you place a, a low value on both your personal growth, remaining in Christ, and your personal mission, bearing fruit in your oikos. The key word here is mirror, because the people who find little motivation for neither personal development in Christ nor the desire to share his love with the people around them might want to take a good look at the mirror and ask themselves a really important question. How genuine is my commitment to Christ anyway? And Jesus was clear. To be designated for the refuse heap, well, that can't be good news for anyone. His analysis of this quadrant, no fruit. Then notice the lower right quadrant where we find Low growth, high mission. The key word here is manipulative. This quadrant contains those who are very motivated to share Christ, yet not so motivated to become like Christ. They talk a lot about Jesus, but they are so unChrist-like in their choices. Since their walk doesn't match their talk, the people in their oikos networks tend to be confused. People hear about how Jesus changed them, but their message isn't confirmed by their example. And in the world of marketing, when you're unable to reference personal experience, the appeal always seems more manipulative than organic. Jesus said the same thing was true in his kingdom. His analysis, expect less fruit. Now look at the upper left quadrant. High growth, low mission. And the key word here is moralist. This is the quadrant that I grew up in. In fact, it reflects the discipleship model that many churches embrace, to worship God and learn His Word, yet not engage the mission of world change. And if you live in this quadrant, virtually all of your time is spent with other Christians. You find it easier to talk to other believers about non-believers and how they fall short of God's standard of holiness rather than actually engaging non-believers, about how they can have a relationship with God through His Son. Jesus' analysis. Expect less fruit. And then last, check out the upper right-hand quadrant, where we find high growth and high mission. The key word here is mature. This quadrant, of course, represents the goal, maturing into someone who finds significant balance in living out both truth, as his words take root, and grace focusing on the needs of the people around us living with an equal measure of both conviction and compassion jesus's analysis expect much fruit so what quadrant do you presently occupy because fruit matters are you finding the kind of balance required to be a world changer someone who is focused on both personal and relational development, becoming more like Him in character while you see your world through His eyes, you'll notice that that north-south continuum is called personal growth. Now, years ago, I might have referred to it as a way to contrast or compare discipleship and evangelism, but not anymore. Because if discipleship is about being a disciple, then discipleship and evangelism cannot be segregated What is the goal of personal growth? To follow Jesus. And where will Jesus lead us? To people who don't yet know Him. It's all about being a disciple of Christ. Now, I'm not saying you'll even have to change the regimen you presently follow to remain in Christ. But you might need to readjust the purpose for those efforts. Redefine the end game, which is the eternal salvation of the lost. The gardener wants to prune those of us who tend to moralize or manipulate to help us take that next step in our maturing process. But he also wants to warn those who need to look in the mirror to do so quickly because the Bible never mentions a no-fruit Christian and eternity is never to be taken lightly. So if we are out of balance, what steps can we take to bring a sharper focus to our mission? Well, first of all, we can make a list. The first step in the process of changing the world is to get a handle on the scope of your specific task. So who makes up your oikos? Before you take even one more step on this journey, you need to sit down by yourself, maybe with your spouse, or even with your entire family, and list everyone who is in your oikos on that oikos prayer card. Let your kids pitch in, providing those names of kids or students within your, your circle of influence as a family that you might not have thought about. Point number two, keep it current. Remember, your oikos is never set. It's always fluid, constantly changing. A year from now, we could have this same conversation and you would have some different names on your card. Some people may move to a new neighborhood. Some may get transferred out of your department or even to another city. Some people will graduate before you do. Some people will die before another year is up. How long do you expect each individual on your card to be a part of your oikos? Well, none of us ever know. That's why we don't have any time to waste. Some of the people on your list will already be believers. If they are involved in church and already intentional about their walk with Christ, then your role in their lives will be that of encourager. Some will be Christians who, for whatever reason, have become distracted and aren't presently attending church. Your role with them is to help them get back on track and pick up where they left off in their walk with Jesus, only now with you as their biggest cheerleader. And some people on your list will be non-believers, or better yet, pre-believers. Your role for them is that of evangelists, funny thing is, the longer you've been a Christian, the fewer non-believers you'll be able to identify. But don't give up. I've had people tell me, well, I don't have any non-Christians in my Holocaust, Tom. But after more careful and prayerful consideration, they start to recognize a number of them. Their child's teacher or coach, the server that always seems to be assigned to their table at their favorite restaurant. It's no coincidence that those people keep popping up on your radar screen on a regular basis. And then number three, pray for everyone in your oikos every single day. Now, I didn't say every so often or every month or so or at Christmas and maybe Easter. I said every day. Pray every day that God Will begin to stir their hearts. Pray that God would bring some type of circumstance into their lives that would reveal their need for a Savior. Pray that God would remind them that He loves them. Pray that you would respond to their questions and provide a clear example of what it means to have a personal relationship with God through Christ. You might even know specific requests to bring to God on their behalf, so throw those into the mix as well. I want you to know that if you do that, you will begin your day every day with that kind of laser-sharp focus that God wants you to have. You pray that way every morning, and believe me, you'll have your game face on every time you leave the house. Number four, invite them to church regularly. Okay, now that does not mean being obnoxious, always inviting them and making them feel guilty when they decline. Notice the word regularly. It probably won't be weekly, maybe not even monthly, but you never give up. You invite them to go to church with you, and first time, they'll graciously decline because they don't want to become a fanatic like you are. So the next time you invite them, and they decline again and again and again and again. And then a couple of months or even years later, you invite them again, and they say, yes, and you can't believe they said yes. You might even say, you do? You want, you want to come to church? And they're pretty nonchalant about it. Yeah, we'd love to come. And you're thinking, what happened? Why did they all of a sudden say yes? Because you've been praying every day, and God has been working, and you didn't even know it. You may have had absolutely no idea what was going on behind the scenes, but something has happened that has convinced them that they need help. Something is going on in their lives that they cannot control, and they are now thinking that turning to God might actually be their best option. And since you've been inviting them for a while, you're the natural one for them to turn to in such a time as this. Anyway, just don't ever give up on inviting them to church. Now, there's more for you to do than simply pray and invite them to church, but right now, that's the commitment you make. And then number five, prepare. Prepare to both demonstrate through your life and defend by your words the faith that you have in Christ. This is the mission of the local church, to prepare believers to fulfill their mission of world change. God calls all of us to be involved in this very specific task, to get together with those people at a very specific place, to prepare to do life with a very specific group of people. And that group is our oikos, and that's where your small group comes in. You guys are a team, and that's good because Christianity is a team sport. Pray for one another and for one another's oikos. I know you've been praying for yourselves and for each other. Now take that next step and pray the way Jesus would pray. On any given morning, most of us review events on our schedule before we fly out the door to engage the day. At 9 o'clock, we might have a production meeting. At 12.30, a client luncheon. 1.30 in the afternoon, drop-off plans at City Hall. 2.45, meet with vice president of corporate. At 4 o'clock, the kids have a basketball game at the community center. Maybe at 6.30, we've got dinner with the spouse. But that's the way we looked at our schedule before we became focused on our Oikos. Now, looking at our schedule becomes a prayer. Lord, I'm going to meet Bob and Bill at 9 o'clock. And even though it's just a production meeting, you know that I don't often see eye to eye with them. And the last thing I want, Lord, is for me to blow my testimony. And so I pray that you will help me to keep my composure. They need you so much. Please help them see your love in me. And at 12.30, Lord, I'm going to see Joe. And Joe confided in me about his family's foreclosure. And he hasn't gone to church for like ever, but it seems that he knows what it means to be a Christian. Lord, would you use this difficult time and, and use it to bring Joe and his family back to you? And Lord, at 1.30, I'm going to see Robert. He's made it clear he doesn't have any time for church in his life. And I don't get to see him for very long ever, so please let my words be full of grace and help him see the difference that you have made in my life. And at 245, Lord, I'm going to see Stephen. He's a great vice president. He's a great leader. Thank you for letting me work with him, and thank you for his quest to know you. Give me wisdom to answer his questions patiently and clearly. And at four o'clock when I go to that basketball game and watch my son play, Lord, help me to be the example that he needs to see in a godly man. Give me wisdom to lead him through this very difficult and critical time in his development. And Lord, as the day ends, as my wife and I have dinner and Lord, I love her so much, I want her to see how important that she is to me. So help me to show sensitivity and grace in the conversation that we share this evening And the chances are pretty good that we're going to have Susan as our server again. And she's so close to accepting an invitation to church. Continue to work in her life and use us to encourage her once again. Thank you, Lord, for another day of life and let it be spent well. Let these people on my schedule see you through me. Now, can you imagine what your focus would be each day as you left your house or apartment that way? You know, I can just hear Jesus talking to the fellows after Zacchaeus. That little swindler in the sycamore tree gave his allegiance to Christ. Jesus could have said, hey, guys, look at that. Who would have ever thought that Zac would want to give his heart to the Lord? That's what we would say, but not Jesus. He said something else. He said, hey, fellas, today salvation has come to that oikos. essentially identifying that now Zacchaeus just like you and me, finally, has 8 to 15 really amazing reasons to get up every single morning.
0: I think Tom Mercer makes it so clear, so challenging. Uh, I hope you'll join. Are you in a home Bible study? We're going through this material. And uh, if you want to get into a home Bible study, See, Tim Ballstrom, he is the point person, and Susie Fernandez is assisting him. And uh, we'd love to get you in a home study. We're studying this, trying to implement it in our life. Uh, It's so simple, isn't it? I guess it's not. (laughs) Okay, I I thought it was. Someone told me, oh, it's so simple, it's so redundant. I just wanted to say, are you doing it? Are you doing it? I want to challenge you. Next Sunday, uh, we're going to take a love offering for a bunch of our young people who uh, every year they go to a uh, camp in Hume Lake. Junior hires go uh, sixth through eighth grade and then high school. It costs uh, $250 a kid as a senior. And three hundred fifty for junior hire, uh, they eat more, I guess. So they're really there two more days. Uh, And uh, when I saw that, I hear those figures. I ask myself, uh, how many ever went to a youth camp for fifty bucks? Anybody ever go to camp for fifty bucks? Yeah. I don't want to shock you. I went. In 1959, no inflation since then, you know. I just got an advertisement from Hume Lake for a week of youth camp, 600 bucks, 600 bucks. So, it's not cheap. Uh, We've got about 80 to 90 kids that want to go. They've been being worked uh, by our slave masters in the youth department, They've been selling these things that I got at my, uh, to go get a discount. Uh, they've been helping doing, because I want to know, are they willing to put any sweat labor, or is this just entitlement? You know, I I want them to, I'm a grace man, but I want them to work for it. I know that's mixed, but that's true. I, I don't want to just send a loggerhead if he, you know, doesn't have any motivation. But we have about 80 to 90 kids that do want to go, and they've never been able to go unless we help them with an offering. So, we want to take this offering next week. uh, In our first service, we had them come up, and I don't know how many kids we had. We had about 40 or 50. Manny, come over here. I don't know if there's any young people in this service. If you're a young person. Or if you're just a person looking for a donation, you can come up and uh, join Manny. Uh, And I I want you, in the first service, we had, uh, in our being dismissed, we had uh, uh, people come up and greet these young people. Next year, I'm hoping the youth department does it this way. Would you like to help sponsor a kid to camp? Let's give them the name of the kid. Let's tell them. And then have them meet with that young lady or young man after camp, meet him for lunch and have that young person tell you what God did in their heart at camp. Uh, we think it's a great in- many times we have kids that get saved at camp. We're not interested in them throwing snowballs as much as being just away. And for God to speak to their heart, use as many of our counselors, our pat youth pastors, and uh, so this is just a portion of the many that were here, but uh, would you start praying with us for this camp, and just uh, pray if the Lord would have you help anyway. Next week we're going to take the offering, but we thought we would just plant the seed in your heart. Uh, Two hundred fifty sends a kid to junior camp. Three fifty sends one uh, to uh, junior high camp. I'd rather do this than to visit them in a rehab program. I'd rather them do this than to get hooked on drugs. I'd rather invest in them in good things and say, I went to a church, no matter where I wind up going, they at least tried to reach me. I might have been a knothead. I was determined to be a rebel. I never bought it, but they invested in me. Have you ever invested in a young person that didn't have your last name? We're going to make an investment. I am. I already have had God tell me what to do. I'm just hoping Carolyn doesn't double it. But, uh, and, but it's worth it. Let's stand. We're going to sing. And uh, you know it would be nice? It's up to you. Most of these kids have had their rabies shots (laughs) so that you can meet them and they will not bite you. They're wonderful young people. We love them. We love you, kids. I wish the whole group that we had first service could be here, but they couldn't make it. Uh, You might do something like this if you feel led. I'm going to be praying that God does something in your heart. I'm willing if God leads me to help you. But more than anything, I'm hoping some eternal business takes place between you and God. Did anybody ever make a major decision for God at a youth camp? 1959, Alliance Redwood, Thursday night, I said, God, if you want a 15-year-old boy to be a preacher, I'll do it. And I've been doing that for the last 55 years. Thursday night, 1959, $35 investment by my dad. Jim Schneider, he was in the tent that I shared, sings in the choir. That night, Trella Hatton preached and challenged young people to give God their body. And I wept like a baby and gave you my body and my life. That's what I want to happen. It's worth the investment. Let's sing, and then we're dismissed. If you feel led, tell one of these young people you'll be praying for them. Get their name. Get their name. Write it down and say, we're going to be praying the Spirit of God turn you inside out and do something with you.